Hello, this is Katrina, and you're listening to my senior individualized project, The Spirit of Love Podcast. I want to be able to show the importance of telling our own stories of religion, and that there are so many things to gain, discover, and learn about when we tell them. Throughout the project, I'll be sharing my own stories of growing up Filipino and Catholic, and what it has taught me about myself, my community, and the world. Hello, so for this episode, I wanted to go into detail and elaborate on some of those festivities, rituals, and celebrations that Ali and I talked about in our conversation. So those were the Santa Cruzan, and then the May crowning, the Sinulog, the Novena, and funerals. My goal is to be able to describe these in a little bit more detail so that you can get a deeper understanding of what these celebrations look like. So I'll start with the first festival, is the Santa Cruzan part of the Flores de Mayo. So Flores de Mayo translates to Flowers of May, and it's this parade that is one of the most important, grandest, fanciest festivals in the Philippines. And the Santa Cruzan is the main event. It is a pageant that celebrates two things. It honors the Blessed Virgin Mary, and it's held in honor of Queen Constantinople and Constantine the Great for finding the true cross. And if you don't know the story behind the discovery of the true cross, it's that Queen Constantinople found the cross on an expedition with one of her servants where she asked him to lie down on three of the crosses that they actually found and the one that healed him they decided was the true cross that Jesus Christ was crucified on. So for the pageant, young women are chosen to be the reinas or the queens who each represent a different virtue of the Virgin Mary. So for example, I'm pretty sure there are eight big ones and they're to represent faith, hope, charity, Um, and different personas of the Queen of Constantinople or St. Helena. So the women who are supposed to represent these virtues are to dress up in their most formal dress, kind of like prom, but the idea is to be dressed like royalty. And so when Ali and I did this, some people will go as far as finding a dress and then getting it personally tailored just for this event and spending thousands of dollars to look their best doing their hair and doing their makeup and their nails because this is such a large and important event. And the festival itself pays a lot of attention to detail. So when you process, there are going to be these big signs that are attached to some sort of arch. And on on the top, there will be like a banner that usually announces which queen of virtue the women represent. And then on along the arch, they'll be decorated with different kinds of flowers. And depending on which virtue you represent, it, your, your flowers might change. So if you are representing um, the Reina Mystica, which is the queen of um, mystical sort of things, she will carry roses, um, a bouquet of roses, as well as have roses on her arch. Other arches will be decorated with lots of different ribbons that will try to correlate with the color of the dress that the young woman is wearing, which takes a lot of time and coordination and attention to detail. And usually the people who are tasked with holding up those arches will be your younger brothers or young men who are close to you or maybe your father or someone that um, if, if you're dating anybody, they're going to be the ones holding up the arch. So one on each side above you as you process. 
And the actual Santa Cruz Zone that Ali and I participated is in Metro Detroit. And since we don't process through an entire city because there aren't very many dense Filipino ethnic enclaves, we gather to one place where everyone from different parts of Metro Detroit will meet. And we will set up cones in this parking lot to map out how we're going to make use of the space the best. I think what's most interesting about the Santa Cruzan is the cultural values that it reflects. In the Philippines, there is a very, very strong pageant culture, and this makes me curious as to why. And so when I'm thinking about it, to me, it seems like a way to claim beauty. And the, this is a modern day phenomenon. You can even check with Miss Universe. Miss Philippines always participates and always makes it to the final rounds. And in the Philippines, beauty pageants, I'm pretty sure they're called bucons, were around as early as 1908. And fun fact, the very first Miss Philippines who was crowned at the Manila Carnival was my great-great Lola Anita Noble. And pageantry runs in my blood as all of the women in my family up until my generation really participated in those in that same exact pageant. And my grandmother won the title and my mother also won the title of Miss Pindoro. But back to why. Why this fascination with pageantry? So in this book called Gendering the Trans-Pacific World, there's this chapter called Beauty in the Body. And one subsection of the chapter is called Pageant Politics, written by Genevieve Clutario. And she theorizes that pageantry is a way for women of color to directly challenge the stereotypes that they cannot be respectable, modern, or classy women. However, what's very ironic is that these beauty pageants were created as a result of colonization and first of Spanish colonization bringing over Catholicism and forcing it onto the majority of the Philippines to become a norm, as well as heteronormativity coming hand in hand with that. She theorizes that it is also a result of American influences of gender norms and to use women's beauty as a public spectacle for entertainment. The standards of beauty were based on European standards of beauty, where colorism is running rampant. So to have lighter skin meant you were more beautiful and to look proper and more like European royalty meant that you were more likely to win, especially if you had whiter blood or if you had European blood. Unfortunately, in the Santa Cruzan and in modern day pageants, colorism is still the deciding factor of whether you are beautiful or not, and it is still a modern day problem, even in the Catholic Church, where all of our depictions of Mary are of her being a white European woman. And to aspire to be a beautiful woman means that you use papaya soap, which is a skin whitening soap that's super common among um, Filipinos. And I know a lot of other Asian countries also where they tend to have darker skin. And a lot of the times in the Santa Cruz and people will use foundations that are lighter than their actual skin color. But thankfully, I think things are starting to change. With my generation being very cognizant of colorism and doing their best to acknowledge that women of all skin tones are beautiful and capable of being respectable, classy, and modern. The next festivity that I want to talk about is the May crowning. So the May crowning is a more solemn celebration compared to the Santa Cruzan, 
where a formal prayer service is held in Mary's name with specific song and prayer dedications um, to her. And typically a rosary will be recited and one woman will be chosen to crown Mary based on her demonstration of Marian values, which are the values of faith, hope, love, the ones that are emulated in the Santa Cruzan, essentially. But there are many ways to celebrate the May crowning. Um, the one way that the Bible study did it is to hold a procession where everybody is given flowers to place at the feet of a statue of the Virgin Mary. Um, but the tradition of the one woman crowning the statue still remains the same. So this celebration places an emphasis on celebrating women who are considered virtuous, and it goes a step further than the Santa Cruzan because um, it takes into account whether those women actually emulate those virtues through their actions rather than just personify the virtues physically, um, aesthetic, physically and aesthetically. The intention of the celebration is to uplift women, and the church acknowledges that during Mary's time, women were inferior to men but still should be celebrated. But if you're going to look a little bit deeper into that, um, the May crowning doesn't necessarily acknowledge the inequity that women go through, um, and women are only celebrated in the church if they're virtuous and motherlike. But other than that, if you simply exist as a woman, that is not enough to be deserving of respect. And like much of the like much of the patriarchal world, the church will acknowledge the good that women do rather than the oppression that they face. And these are the ideologies that have been really heavily co-opted by Filipino culture, um, which is exemplified in the pageant culture like we were talking about, especially in regards to the body, as one of the virtues that Mary exhibits is modesty. And with this issue specifically, Mary as a role model has been a really complex issue for a lot of women, including Sandra Cisneros, who writes Guadalupe the Sex Goddess. And Cisneros looks up to Guadalupe, but she never quite understands how she was to avoid premarital pregnancy because the discussion of sex was avoided at all costs, um, except for when talking about how to shame women because of their sex. And so one of the downsides of only speaking about the virtuous was the exclusion of realistic actions. And Cisneros focuses on how the Virgin Mary has been desexed, her sex has been removed, but finds that her power lies in Guadalupe, the goddess of fertility and sex, rather than the desexed version of La Guadalupe Virgencita. However, for a lot of other women, the Virgin Mary still paves a path of dignity and respect for them that they otherwise wouldn't have had without the church's formal acknowledgement of Mary's value. And so women will look up to her for motherhood and they'll use her to find their agency and importance in the grand scheme of Catholicism and of life in general. And although looking up to Mary as a role model operates within these greater patriarchal structures and ideologies, the fact that some women still find liberation through her should be acknowledged as a form of agency. The next festival is the Sinulog. So the Sinulog is another really large, grand festival in the Philippines that celebrates the Santo Niño, or the Child Jesus. And the story goes that the image of this Child Jesus was given to the Filipino city of Cebu by Ferdinand Magellan, and that the image was capable of miracles. 
But the Sinulog festival existed way before it was co-opted by Catholicism. And it included this dance that was supposed to imitate the water as a ritual prayer to honor their old gods. And the celebration is now more focused on the Sinulog dance's historical background, and that is exemplified through the change of costumes from pre- to post-colonial era. So the dance, the way that I've seen it portrayed is that typically it's all women, and they can come in a variety of different costumes. Sometimes they'll be wearing the barong, which is the traditional um, post-Spanish where it's white and it kind of has like it, it looks like mesh but it's not quite mesh and it has some lace on it um, and sometimes they'll be holding objects maybe candles or small hand symbols um i'm not actually quite sure what they hold because it's dip it's been different every year and they'll dance holding them up and swaying them from side to side and a lot of the times they'll dress they'll find a little boy and they'll dress him up like jesus and they'll put the crown on him and he'll dance with them in the front so in the Philippines, since it would be celebrated in the streets as a parade, and again, like I was saying, we don't have the capacity to do that. In Michigan, we perform the Sinulog in either a dance hall or in between the pews of a church. Moving on to the less celebratory rituals, one that is absolutely vital to Filipino Catholicism is the Novena. So the Novena is a prayer for the dead, and it's repeated nine times. The way that I've been taught to do it is to begin the day that the person dies or whenever you are informed of their death and to continue praying for the next nine consecutive days. After the first nine days, you convene again after 40 days and then again on the one year anniversary. And the number nine is chosen because it's supposed to represent the hour Jesus died on the cross, which was believed to be the ninth hour after dawn or 3 p.m. We usually will convene at the grieving person's house or at their relative's house to begin the prayer. And the novena is a special event and people are expected to come if they can. It's kind of like the expectation of going to church if you are invited to a novena. And so they're really cramped because all of the families are invited to take part in it. So it's not just the people who knew the person personally, but it's their entire family and their kids. So the people who are holding the novena, which is the community, the um, the person grieving does not hold the novena themselves. Somebody else is supposed to organize that for them and do everything for the person who is grieving. So the people who hold the novena will bring food to the grieving family, and then after the prayers are finished, we'll typically eat together. But in my opinion, this is one of the most emotional events I've experienced because the presence of everyone so close to you um, at one of the most devastating times of your life or of somebody else's life is just very powerful. And although that it's sad, grieving in community is something I find very moving and heartwarming. Um, and when the pandemic began and my family began to experience deaths from afar, uh, the Bible study got back together to pray these novenas and it was really difficult to emotionally process death without the physical presence of everyone because we went from grieving with like 30 people sitting so close to each other that we could feel each other's breaths to comforting each other from miles away over a computer screen and I just think that the novena is one of the most connective experiences that we have not just to the dead but to the living 
In contrast to the novena's focus on grieving, the funeral is still something somber, but it's more like a celebration of the life that somebody lived. And oftentimes at the funeral home, the visitation is actually a continuation of the novena. So instead of congregating later that night at somebody's house, you'll just do it right there um, at the wake, which is very much in contrast to the regular practice of holding the casket open. And then people will come and go for like 15 minutes just to say their condolences and their last goodbyes. I remember at one of our Lola's funerals, the one that Ali and I were talking about, um, we brought out the old chairs that we used to use for the Bible study masses in our houses, and we brought them to the funeral home so that we had somewhere to sit for the prayer service. Her wake was open, I think, for three days, and each day a prayer service was held until um, the day of her funeral. I want to say that we were there for about three hours every night until we were asked to leave by the funeral home staff. So we really take the time to be with each other and with that person's um soul. I think what makes the funeral so unique is the belief that we're actually acknowledging that person's entrance into eternal life. When Ali and I were talking about how people die but don't really die, we're referring to the Catholic teachings of the afterlife on heaven and purgatory. And even though it's still a time to mourn, in addition to the tears, there's also like selfies with the casket and lots of memorial photos and people are sharing stories about that person's life and they're celebrating their favorite songs and reading their favorite poems. So the atmosphere is more of remembrance and collective memory rather than pure grief and sadness. So it's really not uncommon to hear a lot of laughter and singing at a Filipino funeral. I hope that these descriptions helped you to better understand the conversation that Ali and I had in context. I think it's really important to see just how central community is in our culture because it dictates how we choose to practice our religion. These rituals are so heavily imbued with personal parts of ourselves that it makes religion hard to separate from our ethnic identity. My takeaway from this episode is that everything is better in community. Even though there are a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of problematic parts of Catholicism and Catholic belief, I just, I can't deny that I have been given such a strong community because of it. And I struggle a lot with my religious identity, but when it comes to these celebrations and these rituals, I see it more as coming together with the people that I love to celebrate the gift of each other. And that's all I have for this episode. So thank you for tuning in and for listening to me talk for so long. And I'll see you in the next one.